0: Today on Motley Fool Money, what do Apple, Amazon, and Nike have in common? Apparently, they're all kicking the tires of the same company, but only one of them can buy it. That and more coming up right now. I'm Chris Hill, joined by Motley Fool senior analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Later in the week, we're going to talk about what happens when one company buys another company, how they do it, what it means for shareholders of each. and This is timely because of, I was going to say our first story, really our first two stories. Um, Let's start with the reports that we got over the weekend of two separate companies exploring bids for Peloton. The Wall Street Journal reported that Amazon is interested in Peloton, Financial Times reporting that Nike is interested, and of course, Apple's name gets thrown in there as well. So, a couple of things I want to get to, but let's start with this. Assuming the price was reasonable, which group of shareholders should be hoping that their company makes this acquisition? Amazon, Apple, or Nike?
1: Uh, well, I mean, I feel like you could probably flip that question on its head and say which group of shareholders does not want this acquisition (laughs) to happen, right? Because it sure feels like Peloton has uh, been through the ringer here recently. But you know, I think you and I, you and I, we've we've talked about this a lot, not just in regard to Peloton but with other businesses as well. In that you can see this is not a business that's going to zero, right? There is value there, right? It's also a business where while it feels like it may have a floor. It probably also has a ceiling too, unless you can figure out a way to push that ceiling higher. And and I think that's where a deal like this could make sense for a business like Nike. So, I, you know, when I I look at, if if we just take into consideration, I mean, a lot of this is just kind of hearsay, right? This is more or less speculation at this point. We don't know a whole heck of a lot, but hey, let's talk about it anyway. Uh, Apple, Nike, Amazon. All three businesses obviously could could digest this acquisition without even really blinking an eye. Um, To me, Amazon doesn't feel like it makes sense. I mean, I I get a little bit weary sometimes with Amazon and they're, they're sort of wanting to try all of these different things that seem to, to, to sort of step outside of, of what they really do so well so for me this would be ultimately for Amazon uh, I think it would just be a way for them to really lose focus on on the core of the business in in their retail operations and their in their cloud business Apple I mean yeah Apple could Apple could do something with it but frankly I mean Apple doesn't seem to they don't seem to like Going that route, right? I mean, this this seems like I mean, Apple's already trying to build out their own fitness offering in and, and it seems like they're taking a little bit of a different approach in just offering sort of the service, not really focusing as much on the equipment side. Save save something like an Apple Watch, right? I mean, you have an Apple Watch and that can tie to your fitness life. But but maybe Apple is trying baby steps to to sort of see what kind of opportunity there is and and how and how consumers may may react to to what they can offer. But for me with Nike, I do see like it makes some sense there's some complementary aspects to these two, to these two businesses. And I think with Peloton it, We've we've been very critical of the hardware side of the business, right? The the cycles and the treadmills and whatnot. I mean, that is a bit of a of, of a trick there for them right now. But the the ongoing community aspect, right? You got a lot of people that are in that community that are really they're believers. They love it. I mean, and community can be a very powerful thing, is as, as long as you as long as you take care of it. And I think that. To, to this point, that's probably where Peloton has executed best, is on their community. I think taking care of their community um, and, and, and giving people a reason to keep re-upping that subscription. And And so with something like a Nike, you know, I, I look at kind of like what Under Armour was thinking with its connected fitness pursuits back in the day, but you know, Chris, actually successful. I mean, right. doing it right. <laughs> and and so, it's important It's important to add that in there, right? I mean, I could see the parallels there between Nike and, and Under Armour here, but the, the, the difference is that Nike would actually get in here and execute and do this correctly. Um, you can glean a lot of data, right, from those users. And, and Nike has a very strong brand to begin with. So, it, even if there are concerns that peloton's brand equity has suffered that that could be fixable right i mean becoming a part of that nike universe could could add a little shine um, and 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 that could make a big difference and then and then the ongoing the relationship that you create with the the community with the users you get a lot of data you find out the kinds of of gear that that those users want i mean it could really could really help Nike break into some new product lines, but also just continue giving their customers what they ultimately want, and that really is the most important part of it all right is 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 for a retailer to be able to continue to to develop uh and, and give their customers ultimately what they really want
0: yeah, when I was reading through this stuff this morning, I was thinking about Nike, and I don't own shares of Nike, and that is very much to my detriment um, not only such an impressive track record of success in the athletic space. If you just think about it as an aspirational brand, the marketing that Nike does, you know, it's pretty hard to watch one of their television commercials and not be inspired. Yeah. When you're sitting there on the sofa, like, oh, I need to lace up my shoes and get out there. Can I just knock down one bit of speculation that happened that I saw that I came across this morning and I thought, no, that's absolutely wrong. And this is an analyst note that came out about this deal. And I'm going to quote directly from this note Apple may be forced into this deal if Amazon, Nike, or potentially Disney aggressively goes after Peloton in a defensive blocking move. Okay, look. (laughs) You seem skeptical. Apple has $200 billion in cash on hand. They're not going to be forced into anything with that amount of cash. They can do it if they want, although, if history is any guide, they're probably not going to do it, but the idea that app that Tim Cook is going to be—it's like, well, we don't want to do this deal, but we just, from a defensive standpoint, we just have to. Jason, no, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, that's a hundred percent
1: wrong. I'm right there with you. I mean that—that that is, I think, I think it is very fair to say that any company that you mention. It feels like Peloton needs that acquirer more than the other way around, no matter who the acquirer is. Um, And and I mean, again, I mean, this is this is all some somewhat speculation. I mean, I I do feel like there is there is a world where Peloton just continues to go about it on their own too, right? I mean, I I think Peloton Peloton could recover from this. It would take a lot of work, of course, but but I do see. I mean, you you make I think a very good point there in regard to Nike's. Man, they just have such a long history of just spinning gold, right? I mean, they just they they push such they push a message that just resonates with so many people. They just they just always do so well maintaining and, and nurturing that brand. Um, it, it just makes you feel like they could bring anything into that universe and and, and continue to spin gold with it. So there is a lot to be said for that. Um, but yeah, to your point there, I, I mean, Apple. I, I don't think any company really would look at this and going, going in and, and saying, you know what, oh, we have to have this. Let's go ahead and, and really. I, I don't think you see a bidding war coming from any of this, right? I think at the end of the day, they would be looking at Peloton and saying, you know what, we could see the merits of your business and we could see doing some stuff with it. We'll buy it for pennies on the dollar, so to speak, right? I mean, I, I think garnering any kind of a premium at this point would would be uh, not in the cards for Peloton, right? They they would have to really, they'd need some time to come back from this and demonstrate that they can actually uh, continue growing before they could ever kind of garner any sort of a premium. I would imagine.
0: Merger Monday appears to be living up to its nickname because Frontier Airlines and Spirit Airlines have agreed to merge. To do so would create the fifth largest airline in the U.S. Um, I I will point out that since this merger was announced, uh, it turned out to be a bad day for Frontier Airlines and and the people (laughs) attempting to fly because um, all of Frontier's flights were grounded midday. Uh, They were apparently dealing with some sort of tech issue. It was Prompting flight delays and cancellations. So, we're just going to, for the sake of this conversation, assume Frontier. Um, <laughs> uh, this is just a hiccup for them, and um, and let's go to what this combined entity would be. Uh, you look at Frontier and Spirit; they are both heavily focused on leisure travel. They're not levered to business travel in the way that a lot of other airlines are, and given that fact. Does that make this combined entity a little bit more of an attractive investment opportunity than ones that are focused on business travel which is coming back slowly Well, let's just leave it at that. It's coming back yeah. slowly.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean I mean to to an extent I think. I mean I I think it's 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 gonna it's gonna kind of come back in drips and drabs, right? Whether it's business travel or leisure travel, I mean, people are people are kind of coming to their own sort of comfort level uh, as as we as we move forward, and, and so I, I yeah, business travel will continue to come back slowly. I think leisure travel it's a bit easier to justify. People are a little bit more. Ready to go do something, and, and I, you know, you've got an airline here that that ultimately the combined entity. I mean, it would ultimately be, still be a very small uh, discount airline, and and so what what kind of opportunity does that really offer investors? Uh, it, that remains to be seen. I mean, at a time like this, inflationary times where where uh, the cost of everything seems to be going through the roof, it, you you could certainly see where travelers. Would be far more willing to to uh, you know maybe step down to like a discount airline experience versus uh, where they might normally just just fly with with one of the bigs. Um, I mean, airlines it's just such a difficult business, right? I mean, it just it, it it just there's so many moving parts, so many variables that come into play. So it is one of those industries where size size really really can can. Make a big difference, and so from that perspective, I mean, I I think this makes a lot of sense. I mean, it 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 does it does seem like it's combining two airlines that are gaining more share. I mean, there was a data point that I saw on CNBC earlier this morning that looked back to 2013. You had Spirit and Frontier. Uh, together had 2.8 percent of the revenue passenger miles flown by U.S. airlines. That was according to the Department of Transportation. Uh, fast forward to 2019, their combined market share had had basically doubled, 5.4 percent versus 2.8 percent. So you're absolutely seeing some kind of a trend there, and I feel like. In this day and age, uh, when the value of a dollar is is becoming uh, more crucial to more people, I I would think that that would put something like a Spirit and Frontier uh, more squarely on the traveler's radar than before. But, yeah, I mean, it's also worth remembering the Bigs have done a very good job over the years of developing uh, loyalty, whether that's through their own individual programs, or through credit card programs, I mean travelers uh, have built up some some loyalty in that regard. Um, but but all in all, it feels like this opens the world up for more travelers, and, and that ultimately would be a good thing.
0: Although it doesn't exactly boost confidence that part of this announcement, they they haven't decided on a name where yeah. the headquarters <laughs> is going to yeah. be, or who the CEO is going to be. So uh, presumably they'll figure all that out, but. We'll we'll move on. Um, <laughs> you and I have talked in the past about the toy industry. What is the main driver in your mind of a toy business? And I'm asking because Hasbro's fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected, and their TV production division is getting the credit. Yeah. Which I yeah. don't really understand all that <laughs> much. But to, back to my original question: When you think about a toy business, what is the main driver of that business?
1: Well, I mean having having followed Hasbro for most of my time here at the Fool so so more than a decade uh, I mean this I mean, a toy company really is—it's about the toys, right? The main driver is toys, and and for Hasbro today, it clearly is still the consumer products side of the business that's responsible for better than 60% of the company's overall revenue. And so, you talk when you do consumer products—you're talking about that stuff that kids buy in stores, right? Toys, toys, all sorts of different characters and and licensing deals that they get with with the uh, IP uh, companies out there to really build out that consumer products offering. But I think that. The future for Hasbro, uh, more and more is is becoming gaming and entertainment. Uh, The consumer product side of the business will still be a very key part of the business, and uh, and I think that ultimately what you look at is you see they're bringing more gaming and entertainment into the fold here and it ultimately plays into this brand blueprint strategy that they have which is ultimately just trying to leverage all the brands and its family across all of these different opportunities. And so you take it to to the to the farthest degree back when we were growing up, right? I mean there was no app on your phone for the Mr. Potato Head that you bought at the store and you got for Christmas, right? I mean, you got Mr. Potato Head, and that was it, right? You didn't have an app to go with it. But, but I mean, now like tech has become an integral part of virtually every experience, whether it's physical toys or virtual entertainment, and so we're seeing Hasbro making a lot of investments uh, across a lot of these different entertainment platforms uh, in order to capture that opportunity. And so, I mean, I think that the interesting thing. When you look at Hasbro, if you go back to 2019 and they made that, they made that acquisition of Enter- Entertainment One uh, for around $4 billion, I mean, that was a very clear sign on the entertainment side, right? You think of Hasbro, you think of Kids' Toys, but then you actually look at the catalog of entertainment that they're a part of. I mean, there are shows that uh, aren't necessarily what what you would be recommending to the seven, eight, nine year olds, right? I mean it's they like got Cruel Summer and Yellow Jackets is a couple of examples that they called out in the release of of successful uh, shows that they are they're a part of now by virtue of that entertainment one acquisition. Um, and, and then again you look to their to their Wizards and entertainment segments, the, the, the Wizards uh, gaming segment, uh, We've seen the the gaming market itself between hardware and software, but game, gaming altogether. I mean, they've they've we've seen companies talking about a, a three hundred billion dollar market opportunity. So, I mean, that that obviously, I mean, Hasbro isn't gonna, isn't gonna tap tap that whole thing, but it's a big universe, and, and that's kind of where they see the puck headed. So, so it is it is a business that has changed materially here over the last decade, um, and it is not sacrificing the physical for the sake of the virtual, it's really coming up with a strategy to be able to marry uh, the two together. and It feels like they're doing a good job of that.
0: I'm just glad that Clifford the Big Red Dog live-action movie well, <laughs> was not a financial success. I, I'm not wishing ill for Hasbro and its shareholders, but that I found that film to be so terrifying that I thought, Boy, <laughs> if that thing's a hit, they'll make another one. And uh, uh, Based on the numbers I'm seeing, I don't think
1: they are. I feel like Clifford the uh, Big Red Dog. It's it's a better cartoon. Yes. uh, Live action. I'm I'm not feeling it either. And listen, I'm a dog lover. You know it. But yeah, to me, I I saw the commercials for that one. I'm like, oh, yeah. I I don't I don't want to go see that. No. Not even not even at home. I don't want to watch it at all.
0: Jason Moser, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. We didn't talk about interest rates, but few topics have gotten as much attention lately. When is the Federal Reserve going to raise rates? What will it mean for stocks? What will it mean for real estate? For all the speculation of rate hikes coming in 2022, you can count our real estate experts among those who are not sweating the Fed's next move. With more, here's Peter Woolley.
2: I'm Deidre Willard, and I'm here with lead real estate analyst Matt Argersinger. Matt, last time we chatted it was a little bit about how REITs had an extraordinary 2021. Uh, some of our REITs have been dragged down a little bit in the overall market volatility. What's happening there?
3: Well, hi, Deidre. I think it's it's a symptom of two years here. You know, we in, if you go back to 2021 when REITs really did well, real estate sector really outperformed historically. It was really about a rotation, I think, away from some of the high flying technology, you know, COVID momentum names that we, you know, really were familiar with. And thinking those were too highly valued, so money rolled into real estate. But here in 2022, I think the overall market's reacting to the idea that it's no longer, you know, a hypothetical that the Fed is going to raise rates. It's it's really a fact. And it could happen as early as March. And higher interest rates, when that's On the horizon, it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction from investors to say, "Well, let me sell off some riskier assets like stocks and go into other assets, fixed fixed income, et cetera." And I think that's just affecting all asset classes. So I'm not surprised that the market's been volatile. A lot of technology names have been hit, but real estate has also been hit because it's all sort of being lumped together in this kind of inflationary, you know, interest rate rising fear environment that we have uh, beginning here in 2022.
2: Yeah, the the two I words, inflation and interest rate, seems to have been on everybody's minds, uh, certainly for the last month or so. So we're real estate people. How does that affect our world?
3: Right. We we've talked about this. You know, it's it's fascinating. I think in the short run, higher interest rates fears of inflation they're going to cause you know they're going to cause stocks to underperform they're going to cause real estate to underperform but if you look historically um, you know National Association of REITs has done some great data on this CBRE has done some data on, you know some analysis on this if you go back around 50 years uh, REITs the real estate sector of the economy has done pretty well in periods of high inflation and higher interest rates and Deidre, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out some of our own research here at The Motley Fool that shows Real estate being a pretty good inflation hedge, there was a study done by Jack Caprell uh, back in January that uh, that showed REITs have beaten inflation 26 out of the last 41 years. So. I'm not as a as a real estate investor myself, with you know a substantial amount of my portfolio in real estate stocks, equities, and, and private real estate. I I'm I'm okay with higher interest rates. Uh, generally, that that means uh, the, a the economy is doing well um, and companies with pricing power and, and real estate as an asset, you know in in good locations with good uses is an asset with a lot of pricing power. And so I think overall real estate is going to do just fine. We just might have a you know kind of a short term challenges with outperforming and then you know, later on, as, as the economy sort of digests these higher rates, I think real estate will do just fine.
2: Yeah. and We've seen so many tech companies are still investing in big purchases, partly, I think, because they see real estate as that store of value, too. That's,
3: that's absolutely right.
2: Let's pivot and talk about one of our favorite trends, which is industrial real estate. My goodness, this has been just a crazy sector. We all know about supply chain issues. Uh, one of the biggest REITs in the space, Prologis. I looked at their earnings recently and their CEO had said that the demand is just showing no signs of slowing. What's going on there?
3: Well, industrial has been so strong for for years now, and and even you know well before COVID hit, which is you know this this long term transition to e commerce across the U.S. economy. And by the way, I saw a stat the other day that almost blew my mind that that retail sales as a whole only sixteen percent of retail sales in the U.S. are happening online. You compare that to say China or other countries where it's 40 percent of of sales are online. So. Think about that. E-commerce seems like it dominates our life these days, but yet it's still a fraction of how we shop uh, generally as consumers in this country. So that's been a trend that's been going on for years. This transition to e-commerce, and what you need with e-commerce is, of course, warehouse space, logistics space, uh, fulfillment centers, uh, transportation hubs, all these spaces that you know we kind of, as real estate investors, took for granted for for years and decades as we loved office, retail, and other things. But we actually need spaces like this, and we need spaces like this close. To big cities, or at least close to you know major transportation hubs or airports or you know things like that, and we just don't have enough of it. We haven't had enough of it for years. We're, we're kind of trying to catch up to it, but in reality, I think we're hundreds of millions of square feet short uh, of where we need to be in industrial space. And that's really exciting if you're a prologist or another industrial reit, because the demand for your facilities has never been higher. The vacancy rates have never been lower, uh, and you can you almost see just growth as far as the eye can see
2: yeah absolutely. One of the things that you and I have talked about, too, is just the acquisition that's happening in this space. So individual REITs are trying to grab up as much space as possible. Larger companies are are gobbling up smaller REITs. Really seems like there's that there's so much capital flowing to this area right now,
3: yeah, that's right. And I think you know a lot of companies are going to take advantage of it. And I was worried about some of the valuations I'm seeing. Uh, across the space, because a lot of companies that we follow, like a Stag Industrial or a Prologis, you know, they're out there making acquisitions all the time, but the, the real estate's getting pricier by the day. Um, so. You know, it's really about identifying those markets where you can still find value, still find opportunity. That's why I like a stag industrial uh, ticker STAG or an East Group Properties uh, ticker EGP because they're in kind of the more secondary markets, some of the hot spots where they can go in and and buy single assets at, at good valuations. Um, and I was surprised, teacher. I mean, we, we just we we opened this segment talking about the uh, you know the, dec- the market volatility, the decline in a lot of real estate stocks. Well, I was surprised to see that industrial reits have been hit. pretty Hard as well, down ten to fifteen percent, depending on which one you're looking at. And to me, that's a tremendous opportunity, given the macro setup we just talked about, which is just this massive tailwind with many years of growth. And yet, these stocks are are, have come down quite a bit, uh, just like all other real estate stocks. Uh, So, I think there's definitely some opportunity in the space if you're looking uh, to add some more real estate exposure to portfolio. I would certainly look at the industrial space.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Matt.
0: Thank you, Deidre. That's all for today, but coming up tomorrow, Allison Southwick and Robert Prokamp are getting ready for Valentine's Day by answering the financial questions that can help improve your relationships. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.